0: invite your attention this morning to the first chapter of Proverbs. We're in our third week of a series that we are calling Foundations, looking at the core beliefs that shape us, the core beliefs that we have placed our faith and our trust in. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 said, "'Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches.'" But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. It's the Lord saying what we should boast in is nothing like might or riches or wisdom or wealth, but we should boast in the fact that we understand and know him. And and there's no more important knowledge that any of us as humans can pursue or possess than the knowledge of the true and living God. That's the most important knowledge uh, that we can come to. And this morning we come, as, as we asked uh, the last two weeks, uh, what is the Word of God? This morning we come to ask, well, well who is God? Look at the words of Solomon in, in Proverbs chapter 1. You know that Solomon wrote uh, the Proverbs. You know that Solomon was known as the wisest man of his time. God had blessed him with incredible wisdom to rule his people. And Solomon said, beginning in verse 2 To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now, How do we get prudence to the simple? How do we receive instruction? How do we know wisdom? Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The beginning of all knowledge, the only hope of gaining true wisdom is in knowing God. And thankfully, the, the privilege and the opportunity of knowing God is given to everyone. Everyone has that opportunity. We spent the last two weeks on, on the Bible because the Bible is the foundation of our, our doctrines, of our beliefs, because it is the literal word of God. And what we believe is based solely on the Bible, it's not based on human speculation. And it's the Bible, not men, who reveal who God is to us. If we tried to figure God out on our own, we'd be like the the blind men in the Indian parable that you've probably heard about, the blind men that had never seen an elephant. And when they had the opportunity to see an elephant, how do they see? They see with their hands because they're blind. And the first one touched the side of the elephant and said, well, an elephant is like a wall, like a massive wall. The second one grabbed the elephant's trunk and said, no, the elephant is like a, a large snake. The third one grabbed the tusk and said, no, the elephant is like a spear. And the fourth one grabbed a leg and said, no, the, the elephant's like a tree. And the fifth one uh, touched the ear and said, no, the elephant's like a, like, a, like a giant fan. And the sixth one grabbed the tail and said, no, an elephant is just like a, a thin rope. And an argument broke out with these men, each thinking, his perception of the element was the only true and right perception. And the moral of that parable is that we all have different experiences and, and we should be humble and, and be open to and respect the perspectives of others. And moral sounds really good until you apply it to religion. You see, the story says that no one has, in and of themselves, comprehensive vision of the truth, and so we need to be open to other religions, to other understandings of truth, to other understandings of God? No. No, no, we don't. The only thing that we need to open ourselves up to is the Word of God because the Word of God is truth, and what God reveals about himself and his Word is all that we need to know. There is one true and living God. No other religion is going to tell you that. No, no other uh, religious society believes that. We believe there's one true and living God. Uh, Isaiah worded it this way in Isaiah 45. God said, I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God but me. There is one God, and this book is his word. It's not, as Pastor Brad said when we were giving out Bibles to first graders last week, it's not about God. It's not words about God. This book contains the very word of God. It's his testimony about himself. Listen, no one else has the right to testify about God other than God, and this book is a testimony about himself, and so there's no other book and no other testimony we need. Now, I'll be honest with you, in our our finite human minds, we're never going to be able to comprehend or fully understand who God is or what he's like. We can only grasp what he chooses to reveal about himself, and what he reveals about himself is not open to debate. What God says about himself in his word is not up for debate and not up for discussion. Now, why is it important that we know all that we can and that we have a proper knowledge about God. What's well, important because our knowledge as believers, our knowledge about God is the foundation of our worldview. Now, did you know you have a worldview? I had a, a church member stop me last week and mention a co worker who's a believer that didn't know um, that, that she had a worldview. Listen, we all have a worldview, your worldview affects how you look at the world, how you live your life. It affects how you see your world culturally and economically and politically and and, and spiritually. Well, as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, your worldview has to be based on the knowledge of God as it's revealed in the Bible. That should affect everything you look at in the world that we live in. Let me give you a really good reason You need to know what God says about himself in his word and why it's dangerous to base your view of God on what men think, including me. I've told you over and over and over again, when you hear me say anything that I claim is spiritual or biblical, you better go check it. If I don't show you the passage and and defend it from the Bible, then you better check it. It's dangerous for us to base our knowledge on spiritual things and specifically on God based on what men think show you why. Pew Research Center back in 2019 uh, surveyed Americans and discovered concerning their spiritual beliefs in 2019 about 4% of Americans claim to be atheist and about 5% claim to be agnostic. That's pretty simple math. That's 9% claim to either be atheist or agnostic. That means the other 91% of this survey believe in God, right? Let me ask you a question. As you look around our nation, does it look like 91% of Americans believe in God? Oh, let me play like Abraham with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. What about 80%? 70? 60? 50? We could go on, couldn't we? It doesn't appear that the majority of Americans believe in God. Well, here's the real problem. It's not whether or not they believe in God. The real problem is the God they believe in. You can go out and do a survey on the street and find lots of people who tell you they believe in God, but you better find out what kind of God they believe in. If you look at the worldview of most Americans, you look at the way they live, you have to believe their God is either incredibly superficial or is something that's been conjured up by their own human imagination. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. Our country would look incredibly different if 91% of Americans believed in the God of the Bible. You know what they believe in? They believe in a God that that fits their need. They believe in a God that makes them feel good about who they are and what they're doing and how they're living. They don't want a God that's going to convict them or try try to change their life. They believe in a God of mercy. They don't want to hear about a God of wrath. They believe in a a God of grace but not a God of just judgment. Before we deal with some of the attributes and activities of God, and that's what we're going to devote our time to today, talking about his attributes, about who he is, let me go ahead and answer the the proof question. As I said last week and talk about the Bible, it's different to prove anything to a skeptic. You, You can't prove the existence of God. You can't. You see evidence, but you can't prove the existence of God. But you know what? You can't disprove his existence. If a skeptic asks you, to, asks you to prove God exists, you ask them to disprove that God exists. It can't be done. But God has given man a natural inclination or intuition that enables him to believe that God exists. He put that in us. It's part of how he made us. Pascal called it a God-shaped void. He put within us, within our spirit, he put within us the ability to know Him. But man, in his sinful state, has become so calloused and so hard-hearted, and allowed his mind to be twisted to the point that he can't accept that God exists. You know what we call men like that? Look at Psalm 14:1. The fool says in his heart, "There is no God." You see, a man becomes a fool by subverting God's design, by rejecting the inner witness that God has placed in him and the ability God has given him to know God. Men who reject God are without excuse. I often, in talking to a skeptic, will hear something like, well, what about the tribe in this remote village in Africa and getting off course here? Okay, I'm not talking about that tribe right now. I'm talking about you. That's a ridiculous excuse for you not to believe in God. Without excuse, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul, talking about God, said, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, listen, have been clearly perceived, How? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God's made himself clear to everyone, even the person in the remotest tribe in Africa that doesn't have a Bible, that hasn't had a missionary come there. He's made himself clear through the creation of the world of things that have been made so they are without excuse. You know, not only does God place in man the ability to believe, but he has placed evidence of himself all over the world. Look around. Look around. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, you city people need to get out of the city and away from the lights and look up if you want to see the handiwork of God. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. You know, you see a house being built, maybe you're in a neighborhood that's, that's under development or you're driving by somewhere and you see a house being built you don't think to yourself, wow, that's amazing. That, that house that was not designed, that house that has no contractor, no builder, is just building itself. Isn't that what you think when you see a house under construction? No, you know there had to be a designer and there had to be a builder. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, why would anyone think when you see a house being built, why would anyone think the universe was built with no designer and no builder? It's ridiculous. Everywhere in our world there's evidence of the existence of God. Let me just quickly, and, and this we could spend hours here. Let me just quickly give you three examples of the evidence that God has provided of Himself. Let's start with God's design in the heavens. Our sun is a medium-sized star that is in a permanent state of nuclear activity, it's constant. Core temperature of the sun is 55 million degrees Fahrenheit. The sun produces more energy in one second than man has used since the dawn of civilization. In one second, the sun produces more energy than all of mankind in the entire earth has used since the dawn of civilization distance from the sun to the earth is 93 million miles. You've probably no one have heard this before. If the earth were farther from the sun, it would be a perpetual frozen Arctic on which life could not exist. And if the earth were closer to the sun, it would become a glowing furnace, unable to sustain life. So God set the earth, the perfect distance from the sun, to provide a balanced amount of heat and cold that sustains life. And also, allows climactic zones to to develop to allow variation in plant and animal species. That's why we go to other places of the world to see what it looks like. What about God's design in the animal kingdom? Here's just a small example, the honeybee. Do you know the honeybee has claws on its feet? That enables it to uh, traverse rough surfaces, and between the claws on its feet, the honeybee has suction cups. So it can climb vertically, can hang upside down on smooth surfaces. Its hind legs have little basket-like devices to hold the pollen that it gathers from flowers. Its wings move at the speed of 75 beats per second. So it can move up, down, sideways, it can hover, and the honeybee makes its own wax. It doesn't get the wax to make the honeycomb, it doesn't get it from some other source. The honeybee makes its own wax and builds the wax cells to make that honeycomb where it stores the honey that it makes from the nectar that it gathers. What about your body and my body? You know, every minute of your life, your heart pumps 10 pints of blood through 60,000 miles of arteries, veins, and capillaries every minute. Adult body has between eight and nine pints of blood containing 25 trillion red cells to carry oxygen and 25 billion white cells to fight disease. Your body has 306 bones. When a baby is born, typically the baby has 305 bones, but many of those bones fuse together. And the average adult has 206 bones that are operated by 650 muscles and 100 joints. The tendons that connect your muscle to a bone can stand a stress point of up to eight tons per square inch. Your thigh bones, when you're walking, can handle a strain of up to a half a ton per square inch. All the organs and systems of your body are encased in a flexible, waterproof covering. The average man has 20 square feet of skin, which wears away and is replaced every few weeks. Set in the skin are up to not true for all of you, five million hairs. I wasn't looking at anybody, I'm looking down. (laughs) Five million hairs which last about three years. Sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. Nine million taste buds, millions of nerve cells, four million receptors in the skin to enable you to distinguish between hot and cold, pain and comfort. And on and on and on we could go about the wonders of the human body and the wonders of the animal kingdom in our solar system. And it all happened by chance. I want to tell you, when you look at the advanced life forms on the earth, I think it takes more faith to believe in a, in a big bang or in evolution than it does to believe in intelligent design by a creator God. People think we're so foolish because we believe in intelligent design by a creator God. It takes more faith to believe this stuff all just happened by, by chance. Well, let me explain our our core belief or our foundational truth on who God is. And I'm just going to quote very quickly from the Baptist Faith and Message. That's a document I mentioned to you last week. You can Google and find it online. It's not not what we believe because we're Baptists. It's what we believe because of the Bible, of God's Word. Here's what the Baptist Faith and Message says, Article 2, about who God is. There is one and only one true and living God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. His perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without division of nature essence or being now we're going to break that down a bit and and it's going to feel like today we're just reciting uh, several lists of things but I hope that as we walk through the attributes of God maybe two or three will really grab you because of where you are or or will be uh, applicable to your point of need today and perhaps even lead you to worship when you understand more about who God is And we can start at the very beginning of the Scripture with a very simple phrase. God had Moses start the biblical account with this phrase, these five words. In the beginning, God created. Now, just those five words tell us three very important things about God. The first is this, God is transcendent. What does it mean he's transcendent? Well, he's above creation. God was not created. He's not a creature. He is the creator. God created. There are many religious groups, many cults that believe that God, specifically Jesus, the son of God, was created. No, God is creator. Jesus was part of creation. In the beginning, God said, and if you read further down, you see, let us... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all a part of creation, and because he is transcendent, because he is creator, not created, creation belongs to him. Whether you want to admit it or not, you belong, every person on this planet belongs to God. God created according to his desire. He chose to create, and he chose what he chose to create. It was all about him. And when you think about it that way, it's pretty astounding that he chose to create us. Look down through the ages, look down through history at the incredible rebellion we've committed against God, and yet he knew that in advance and chose to create us. God always has been and always will be transcendent. And Isaiah 57, 15, Isaiah wrote these words, the high and lofty one inhabits eternity. The second thing we see in Genesis 1.1 is that God not only is transcendent, God is imminent. What does that mean? Well, he's involved in creation. He's a part of it. His involvement didn't end after day six. When he finished, and it says on day seven he rested, that doesn't mean that was the end. He did no more. God didn't create the world and all that's in it and then just leave it. He is actively involved in creation, and he is still involved in creation today. You know, the climax of God's imminence occurred when he sent the Lord Jesus. Talk about being involved in creation. Here, even after man had rebelled and sinned against him, he sent his son who came to earth as a baby, lived a A a human life with its limitations for 33 years among us and then died on the cross for our sins God's involved in creation thirdly you see in Genesis in the beginning God God is eternal he has no beginning or ending and and I'll be honest with you with our finite human minds I, I don't know how you wrap your brain around that I don't know how you understand the infinite I mean everything we know has a beginning and ending how could God have always existed? How could God have no beginning? We can't comprehend it. But with God, there's no past, present, or future. The present is just part of eternity. God is eternal. He has never been limited by time. He's self-existent and self-sufficient because he's an uncreated being. He, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything to sustain him. You remember when, when Moses asked God, when God was telling Moses the, the job he had for him and going to Israel and going before Pharaoh and well, how will, how will the people know? How do the, who do I tell them sent me? What was God's answer? I am. I am. God was speaking to his eternality and his self-existence. What is he saying? I am. I have always been and I always will be. I am, I am all in all, I am everything, I am completely sufficient. Let's look at some of God's moral attributes and the list of attributes could just go on and on and on. We're we're just hitting the surface, we're just scratching the surface here. But just to give you enough to understand the God that you worship and the God that you serve. What are his moral attributes? Well, number one would be his holiness. God's perfect. That's why he abhors evil and demands purity because he's a perfectly holy God. And God's holiness is what prevents us as as sinful individuals from being able to come into his presence. God's holiness is why he had to turn his back on Jesus when Jesus was on the cross. He couldn't look on the sin because, remember, it was the sin of all mankind laid on Jesus as he was there on the cross. God's holiness is why we have no hope apart from Christ's work of redemption on the cross. There's nothing else that can make us right with God. God's holiness is why as his people who are called to reflect his image are supposed to be holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Those who are born of God should grow to resemble their father. It's a lifelong process. You're not ever going to be perfectly holy in this life but you should continue to be growing to resemble the Father, to be holy because he is holy. Another moral attribute of God is his justice. Now, there are two sides to justice. There's remunerative, which is rewarding. There's retributive, which is punishing. God is rewarding And God is punishing in his justice. Why? Because he can't act contrary to his laws. His law says that the payment for sin is death. His justice demands that sin be punished. And so man either has to accept, understand that God is a just God, has to accept God's plan of redemption in sending Christ, or man has to suffer for his own sin. It's one, it's one or the other. We accept God's plan of redemption where Jesus becomes our substitute, or if we refuse Jesus as the substitute for our sin, we have to suffer for our own sin. Now, a lot of men say, well, that, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem reasonable. Well, listen, God is the one who is wronged by our sin, so only God can determine how justice is fulfilled and how restitution is made. That's his call. That's not man's call. You know, man has been trying for centuries to to find another plan. You know why? Because man doesn't want to be accountable. Because man doesn't want to give up control of his own life. Man doesn't want someone else to be God and Lord and tell him how to live. And so man's been trying to find some other way. But listen, Jesus is the only plan. Only through Jesus comes salvation and only by surrendering to the lordship of Jesus do we receive his gift, his substitution in our behalf because that's how God has decreed it. It's his justice, not what we think justice ought to be. Third moral attribute of God is his righteousness. The great news for us as believers is that because we follow a righteous God, we can know he will always keep his promises, starting with salvation, starting with the guarantee of eternal life to those who place their faith in Christ. And, and you know, when you think of God's righteousness, you you might think, well, that's why I, I don't feel comfortable coming in the presence of God. But, you know, it's actually his righteousness that allows us to approach him. God has promised to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from sin. God has promised, when we confess sin, to separate our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. God has made us righteous in Christ, and then he expects us to live righteously so that we can approach the throne of grace boldly. Fourth moral attribute of God, and this one you know, he is love. He loved us that in spite of our rebellion and sin, he gave Christ to serve as a substitute. And Christ received all of his wrath against sin so that we could be spared. Romans 8 32, Paul said, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, God's love is a, is a committed love. It's it's not a feeling, it's not an emotion. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he felt like it, because he felt so emotionally bound to us. It's commitment. And God's commitment and love to us will never wane and never fail. Let's talk about his infinite attributes. I'll mention just three that you've heard. God is omniscient. He has infinite knowledge. He knows all things. Psalm 147, verse 5, his understanding is infinite. Hebrews 4, 13, all things are opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know, when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and lying down. You're familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You know it completely, O Lord. God's omniscient and infinite knowledge applies to us as well. That can be comforting or convicting. I mean, there are probably times we don't want God knowing our thoughts from afar. We don't want him knowing a a word before it's even on our tongue, before we're going to say it but it's also comforting to know that God has that kind of knowledge about us and yet he loves us. Here's here's something that's amazing and and grace-filled about his omniscience, the fact that he knows all things, even though he knows all things, Isaiah 43, 25. I will blot out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God is saying, I'm willing, when you come and you confess your sin, I'm willing to blot it out for my sake. What is he saying? I so long for relationship and fellowship with you, I'm more than willing to forgive your sin. Hebrews 8, verse 12, I'll be merciful to the unrighteous, and their sins I'll remember no more. Here's what's astounding about God's omniscience, For us as sinners who come to the Savior, He chooses to limit His infinite knowledge. He wipes out the knowledge of your sin when you bring it to Him and and you confess it to Him. God's not only omniscient, He's also omnipresent. He is infinitely present. He is present everywhere. If you read further in Psalm 139, David asks the question, where can I go from your spirit? You you can't go anywhere to hide from God. You know it's ridiculous the ridiculous thing a lot of believers do when they get into sin and, and, and Satan tries not to convict you and draw you back to God, but Satan tries to condemn you and push you further away from God, you get into sin, and you decide you're going to hide from God, and you forget you're hiding in his backyard. He knows all the places, right? You can't hide from God. And God, in his omnipresence, is showing his grace and that he's willing to be present with us. And that's a free act of of his grace and his will. Now, for the unregenerate man or woman, for the person who wants to be separated from God's presence, they don't want to live with God, they don't want to know God, they don't want God having a part of their life, the time is coming when his omnipresence are going to be withdrawn when they're thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And I, I've said it before and I'll say it again, the worst thing about hell for eternity is not the physical torment, it's it, that men and women who were created in a way to, to know God and desire God are going to spend all eternity realizing that they will never be in the presence of God and that's exactly how they were made and intended to live. The third infinite attribute, attribute is God is omnipotent. He has infinite power. Through his power, he created the universe. What do you see in Genesis? How did God create? He just spoke. He just said the word. Through his power, he created the universe, and through his power, the universe is sustained. Listen, this universe would, if God removed his preserving power, there would be instant destruction of our world, of our universe. Now, for the believer, God's omnipotence is a great comfort because it means there's no problem too big for God. There's no trial that you'll go through that is too difficult for God, there's no, no challenge that is impossible. David in Psalm 27 said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? An omnipotent God is watching over you and watching over me, and his power is available to us for whatever we face. Well, let's let's finish on the attributes of God with his activity as it relates to us. The first one we've kind of already covered, the fact that God is our creator. He he created the world out of nothing. There was no pre-existent matter. God didn't pick up bits and pieces of different kinds of matter in order to create. He created the world and everything in it, including you and me, out of nothing. And then you notice in Genesis one, he declared it to be good. God created us and God created for us. You know that before God began creation, is he, I don't know, I don't know how it happened. Father, son, and spirit are hanging out in heaven one day, and maybe they're bored. So one of them says, well, let's make something. So they start creating. Imagine God's business card says creator of the universe or something like that on it. Do you know that when they started creating, you and I were, were, were on God's mind? Because as you look, as God created, at the end of each day of creation, God says about what he made that day, it was what? Good. Until he gets to man, then he says it was very good. But what I want you to understand is when God was creating, he was thinking about us. He was thinking about, are there any, any uh, horseback riders in the room? Let me see your hand. Katie, God was thinking about you. You know what happened? God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are talking and said, oh, oh, let, let's make uh, plants and trees and a beautiful place, and, and oh, oh, let's make horses. Because down around 2021, there's going to be a little girl named Katie that's going to love to ride horses, so God was thinking about Katie when he made horses. God was thinking about us when He made all these good. Think about the fact God could have made a world that, that everything tasted like English peas. <laughs> Please don't ever invite me over to your house and serve English peas. I can't be polite when it comes to that, okay? <laughs> he could have made a world where everything tasted the same, everything tasted like peas, and where everything smelled like sweat. I'm talking about junior high boy locker room sweat. You know what I'm saying? He didn't do that. He created all this diversity and all these sights and sounds and and color for us. i got to keep moving. God is our redeemer. That's his other activity with us. He rescues us from peril. The the picture of God rescuing the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt is, is a great picture of God rescuing us from the bondage of sin. He's our redeemer. He's our preserver. He he protects and he guards us. No creature escapes his, his care and concern. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10 that even the sparrow doesn't fall without God's knowledge? God is our ruler. He continues his involvement in creation and in his sovereignty as ruler, everything is under his control. And because he's the ruler, all of us owe him our unconditional love, our complete reverence, our total obedience. We kick against the goads when it comes to that, but we forget God is the creator. He has the right to say how we're going to live. We can't plumb the depths of, of the character and attributes of God. He's, he's independent. He's unchangeable. He's invisible. He's truthful. He's good. He's jealous. He's merciful. And on and on and on we could go. But let me leave you with this one. Despite the fact he's a transcendent God, he is above creation, for whatever reason, God is knowable. He made himself knowable to his sinful creatures. We're never going to know and understand him fully in this life, but he allows us to know him personally. Over and over in Scripture, we're told to seek him. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Do you know him or do you know about him? When you think about attributes of God, I think one that that is probably the most common that people think of is Father. God is our Father. And in the sense that he created man, he is the father of the human race. But spiritually, he's only the father of those who have come to him for forgiveness of sin, and have surrendered their life to him as Lord of life. That's what it means that, that God is Father. And the question this morning, first question is, is he your Father? And then the second question is, if he's your Father, are you continually seeking him to know him in a deeper and deeper way? And do you understand his call on your life to bring more of creation in so he can become their Father. Now we we just scratched the surface this morning, but I hope you're beginning to really think about who God is more than just some distant being up there that watches over you. You're beginning to think about the majesty and the glory of the God that has called us to be his own and given us the privilege of serving and living for him.